I'm going to move on now to the uh, operational side. And here I uh, will cover the following uh, items. The applicable law to, guarantee, uh, to loan and guarantee agreements, projects on international waterways, de facto governments, disputed areas, assistance to non-members, assistance to members with no effective government, accountability, and human rights. First, in the operations with members, what is the applicable law? Is international law the applicable law? The agreements don't say so. The agreements say simply that they are valid and enforceable, notwithstanding laws of any state. The member state or the IBRD may not assert claim of an enforceability based on the articles of agreement or the law document. The bank has interpreted that these provisions mean that by implication, international law is the applicable law. Uh, there was a concern at the beginning that the bank started its operations that uh, the law of the borrower would be the law applicable. As you may know, there were two cases that were handled by the Permanent Court of International Justice, the Serbian and Brazilian loan cases, where the court said that the law of the borrowing state is the applicable law. At the same time, uh, at the time the bank started to operate, it would have been probably objectionable if it explicitly had said that international law was applying to its agreements. And therefore, did not want to be objected to at the same time, uh, it did not want to accept that the borrowing state law would be the law applicable to the agreement. So it only by implication is that is international law. Now, uh, it has uh, uh, in sort of, if you wish, in consonance with this, it moved to register the agreements, the loan agreements, as treaties with the United Nations. So to, to give it, if you wish, the, the enhancement that if there are treaties, I mean, international law would apply. So they are registered with the United Nations, is the only multilateral development bank that has done so. And, uh, and it was done for this reason, I mean, to enhance its international character at a time where what the legal situation would be is less clear than now. I mean, as in contrast to that, uh, let me tell you that the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development from the beginning, I mean, it was created in uh, the, uh, 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 in at the moment uh, in, in which uh, the, the demise of, of the Soviet Union and uh, when the political change in all the area of Eastern Europe happened, uh, it provides in its agreements, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, also that 
the rights and obligations are enforceable, notwithstanding any law to the contrary, but it also explicitly recognizes that public international law is the applicable law and mentions as sources of uh, international law treaty obligations, treaties that reflect customary international law, the practice of states, and the practice of international financial institutions, which I think is interesting that it recognizes so in its agreements in terms of what I had explained before, how important the practice of this institution is and how it has been built up and how uh, each uh, subsidiary bank, I mean, uh, subsequent bank in in that has been created has been following the practice of the previous ones and has added its own. So, and the other source of international law that is mentioned in the agreements of the EBRD is the general principles of uh, general principles of law. Uh, so, uh, the African Development Bank and the Asian Development Bank that started with provisions like the IBRD has moved to uh, provisions similar to the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. At the time of speaking, the World Bank has continued to maintain the same clause. Uh, I, there will be obviously no reason not, not to change it and have it more similar to the EBRD because in practice that's what the World Bank always believed that was the law applicable to its agreements with member countries. Uh, now uh, the following segments uh, deal with policies of the institution, uh, policies on the uh, projects on international waterways, the federal governments, disputed areas, how to assist non-members, assistance to members with no government, human rights, and uh, it is important uh, to say a few words on what are the policies of the institution? I mean, mostly from, from a legal point of view, how are they adopted, how they are established, I mean, wh what are they? I, I should say first that if you are curious about them, uh, they are all on the internet. You go to the World Bank website and uh, projects and operations, you will find the policies of the institution. Also, I should add, while I'm at, uh, uh, at it, is that you may want to look at what is called the information statement, uh, which is of interest to investors. It will be on the investors in the institution. But it's a very interesting document because it's the one that the World Bank will file with regulatory agencies, uh, type of the SEC, when they issue bonds in the capital markets. So is up to date, is accurate, is usually audited information, and is a summary uh, of uh, what the institution does, not only the, the financial side, but also of what the basic policies of the institution are. So I always find it, if you need an update information on any of them, of these institutions, I mean, just go to the website, look at the information statement, will tell you exactly how many member countries they have, how much of the capital is subscribed, how much uh, they have borrowed, how much they have lent, etc. So this by way of, uh, of a parenthesis. So what are the, the policies? The policies are based on the articles of agreement, on the business needs of the institution, and on the experience 
of the institution. And they have grown over the years. They are nearly case law, if, if you will, certainly in, in the areas, of some of the areas I'm going to touch upon, uh, there were no particular policies when the institution started. I mean, they every time uh, there were the considerations of the articles of uh, being a cooperative institution, a development institution, etc. That play, they reach a decision, and then over time, I mean, they would review what the practice has been and to start to issue instructions to the staff on what the policy was, and that's how most of them have grown by accretion, by experience, by practice. Uh, there are uh, uh, a number of things that I should say on, on the policy development, and is that the processes are not purely internal to the institution. There has been influence both uh, through the special funds when they, the institution requests uh, funds for a let's say, the environment for the, the countries which are not creditworthy to borrow from the bank and borrow from either the International Development Association. Normally, governments take this opportunity to impose certain conditions to the funds that then translate normally in policies that go beyond those funds but to the whole institution of the IBRD. So indirectly, the donors in those funds have, uh, uh, if you wish, incremental power as opposed to the members of the institution itself, of the board of executive directors, that are the ones that supposedly are to adopt the policies. So that's uh, uh, an issue in this institution of interplay of the donors of the funds for extra purposes, if you wish, or uh, other institutions uh, or funds that the, the World Bank is the trustee, and the bank itself. So it, it, it's a way to impose conditions on the institution itself, which is not the one for which the funds are for. Uh, the other side is that the, the World Bank and uh, certainly uh, also probably some of the other MDBs were relatively close institutions. And in the course of the last two decades, or even more, um, maybe 25 years, there has been a major change. They have disclosed their policies. Now they are on their website. Not only that, when there are new policies being prepared, drafts may be posted on the website for comment from anybody. Uh, before the internet existed, I mean, there were uh, particularly for social and environmental policies, the bank would convene uh, conferences of NGOs, uh, technical uh, institutions that were interested in the subject to comment on the new policy. And uh, now with uh, the internet, all this process has become much more interactive than it was before. So uh, that's a way, if you wish, how uh, civil society has been open to participate in the institution. And, and this has changed the whole process of policy making. So this is by way of introduction on, on, on the policies of, of the World Bank and what has happened in, in recent decades. Uh, let me talk now about uh, projects on international waterways. Uh, which is one of the policies that has uh, implications uh, more uh, internationally. 
there are many uh, policies. I, uh, I'm not covering them all. I should say this is only a, s a selected group which are most significant from an international law point of view. There are very important policies on the environment, uh, social policies for displaced persons by World Bank projects, which are uh, uh, very significant for, for the institution, are very important, and, and that I'm not covering in this lecture. So, at first, um, when the World Bank uh, tried to finance or had to request for financing for a project that was on an international waterway, meaning that it was, let's say, a river that would flow uh, in different countries, it required that it would not provide the financing if there was not an agreement of all the repairings on how they would use the, the water or that there was an agreement regarding the specific project with all the riparians concerned. This attitude the bank realized r relatively soon, since it received many requests that implied the use of what would be in international waterways, uh, that this was a, a, a too rigid uh, attitude. And it moved on to financing if there was no objection from the other riparians. And the reasons, as you can imagine, in terms of uh, the following these practices, was the fact that it's a cooperative institution, so it does not want, by financing a project, in any way uh, impair the use of waters without the agreement of another member country. Uh, there may be also project reasons, because a particular country may control the flow of water, to where the project is going to be located, if it's, let's say, a hydro dam or an irrigation project, and therefore the benefits of the project uh, are going to be lost if there is not agreement that there will be a certain flow of, of uh, water uh, guaranteed. So there were considerations of these two types, I mean, uh, from uh, the institutional side and from the project side. And what the bank requires is that uh, the riparians be notified of the project details, either by the country where the project is located, or if that country refuses, by the bank itself. And the project will not move on if the country would refuse to give the information to the other riparians. If the country had signed, I mean, if the riparian countries have a treaty that sometimes they have a, a river regime that has been uh, agreed by all the riparians. In those cases, normally the bank requires that the country follows what it has agreed in the treaty in respect of new projects, let's say, or new uses of the water. If there is an objection, the World Bank has the the, the option, I mean, is provided in the policy to have an expert review of what, what the objection is, what the project is, and so forth, and use it then for purposes of making its own decision, whether there are really, uh, there are going to be adverse effects, there's going to be damage on the member country that objects. So it has to make an assessment. In practice, also, the policy has been extended to international aquifers in several, in several occasions. I'm just noting that I'm not going to go into detail of the cases. 
but I think it's interesting that it's been extended not only to the surface water, but also to underground water. Let me move on to the fact of governments. It's, uh, there is a definition in the policy that defines a de facto government, and I quote, as one that comes into or remains in power by means not provided for in the country's constitution, such as a coup d'etat, revolution, usurpation, abrogation, or suspension of the constitution. The policy that the bank has regarding de facto governments responds to considerations, again, anchored in the Articles of Agreement, like the prohibition that the institution has to interfere in the political affairs of its members, or to take into account the political system of a member, or base its decisions on political considerations. There are also financial or operational considerations, such as whether a particular de facto government intends to honor the debt of the country to the IBRD, and whether it has sufficient territorial control to undertake obligations to the IBRD regarding the execution of projects and guarantee as safe access for the supervision, because normally the staff of the World Bank will supervise uh, the projects in the field. So the uh, uh, accessibility to supervise the project is very important. Now, let me distinguish uh, in terms of developing what the requirements of the policy are between existing projects and new projects. For existing projects, requirements, the requirements r r relate to the continuation of disbursements whether the bank, uh, there is a change of government, uh, not foreseen uh, in the Constitution as defined, and uh, then what to do? Do you, you continue the disbursements as usual, or what requirement do you impose? And here there, uh, there are uh, four elements that uh, the policy uh, requires to be taken into account. One is how effective is the control of the new government, whether it has recognized its international obligations. Many times new governments that come into power by a coup would make a statement that will they may or may not, but if they, if they do that will do not comply with international organizations of the previous government. The feasibility of continuing the existing operations. I mean, are they, is it really realistic, is feasible, what is being financed, that it be continued? And whether there is actually an authorization to disburse, because you need actually uh, an, uh, somebody in authority in the country that tells you you may disburse funds uh, if somebody so-and-so signs or some another person signs, and that may have been disrupted. This if you wish, line of authority by the changing government. Of course, when you consider uh, de facto governments, there are extra-legal risks, dimensions in it. And here I quote from uh, a general counsel 
that was expounding on this matter, says agreements entered into with the FATO governments involve additional risks, since there is a greater possibility than usual that at a later day a representative government might want or be politically compelled to disclaim responsibility for the obligations incurred by the de facto government. Therefore, the decision whether or not an agreement should be concluded with a particular de facto government cannot be based on purely legal considerations. Practical judgment must ultimately be made about the nature of the additional risks involved, whether they are outweighed by considerations favoring the loan, and whether ways exist which might permit such risks to be reduced to an acceptable level. So, to diminish these risks, and disaster legal risks, uh, the following matters are taken into account by the bank when it comes uh, to making a new loan. Uh, the degree of stability, the public acceptance of the new regime, the record of acceptance of obligations incurred by past de facto uh, governments in the same country. There are countries where there is a history of de facto governments. Recognition by other governments, and position of international organizations. So the World Bank will normally wait and see a little bit what happens and let's say what the attitude of other governments are, particularly neighboring countries, the United Nations, etc., on what to do. There are at times countries that are in dire need of assistance and they have no effective government. And, of course, as we have said, the, the World Bank uh, needs the guarantee of the country, I mean, to, to finance projects. Or, in the case of the countries that receive funds through the soft loan window at the World Bank, which is the International Development Association, normally the lending is done to the government of the country itself. So, but uh, if there is no government, is remains equally a problem. It's not an issue only that applies uh, in the cases of the guarantee. Uh, there is the case of Somalia, and how it was done here was that uh, the World Bank made grants to other specialized agencies of the United Nations, and that in their work they would assist in the country. And this precedent is now the policy and the policy says that if there is no government in power, bank assistance may be initiated by requests from the international community as properly represented, then it says e.g. by UN agencies, and subject in each case to the prior approval of the executive directors, which uh, it goes nearly without saying. Now, what to do in disputed areas? It's, uh, another item that I think it has international significance. The considerations here is that if a proposed project is in a, in a disputed area, there will be uncertainty about the country from which it should obtain a guarantee, the World Bank. Financing by the IBRD could be perceived to preju prejudice the position of one party to the dispute in favor of another or the dispute itself may affect the viability of the project to be financed. For these reasons, no financing is provided in a disputed area unless there is agreement, no objection of the other party in the dispute, or there are special circumstances in the case that warrant the IBRD support. 
and uh, notwithstanding uh, that uh, there may be uh, a, a lack of uh, a lack of any objection or lack of approval by the other claimants. I, I think uh, I meant notwithstanding any objection or lack of approval by the other claimants. And here, what are these special circumstances? Uh, that the project is not harmful to interests of other claimants, as assessed by the, the World Bank, and that the conflicting claim has not won international recognition or has not been actively pursued. Here, the World Bank tries not to be used, if you wish, to uh, by uh, uh, a potential claimant to take advantage of the opportunity of a project financed by the bank to resurrect some claim that really uh, nobody has recognized and that has not been pursued for, for decades and who knows, sometimes for centuries. Uh, assistance to non-member countries. Uh, the Articles of Agreement of the IBRD prescribe as the primary purpose of the institution to assist the, in the reconstruction and development of territories of members. The IBRD is also required to use its resources and facilities exclusively for the benefit of members. So, uh, what do you do when you are faced with situations like uh, the change of politi political regime in the Soviet Union, uh, West Bank and Gaza, Kosovo, East Timor. Those are four examples where the bank was faced with that situation and where the World Bank was under a lot of pressure to assist at the time, starting with the Soviet Union. Uh, the issue there was that uh, there was this tremendous uh, regime change in the country and uh, there was need for immediate assistance and the Soviet Union was not a member of the World Bank. Uh, you, you should know, because it's normally to not know, that the Soviet Union attended Bretton Woods and the negotiations of Bretton Woods and uh, was a participant in the whole preparation of the Bretton Woods institutions. And in the printed copy of the originally that is held at the State Department is the depository, the, Uni the, the, the United States. There is, and under uh, uh, the signatories, there is the Soviet Union. By the time uh, Russia became a member of the World Bank, uh, the, there was no Soviet Union anymore. Uh, but uh, uh, just this is uh, anecdotal, going back on how the assistance to the Soviet Union was instrumented before it became a member and before its demise and then Russia succeeded uh, finally in acceding to the membership. Uh, the assistance, and that was also the case for the other then examples, the same system was followed. Um, assistance was provided through a trust to which the IBRD transfer a certain amount of its net income. This is uh, just again a parenthesis. Uh, the World Bank had net income since 1948, since the beginning. It had always uh, its own uh, funds. So the budget of the World Bank, while it is approved by the member countries, it does not come from funds, fr so to speak, from the member countries. 
uh, in, in the sense that are contributions to the budget of the bank. It comes from the funds that it, it generates in its operations, it generates from the funds that have been contributed as capital to the institution by the member countries, but not from budget support to the institution. And that uh, is one of the features of the institution, which is important to remember when you consider it, because it has given it through the years a certain independence uh, to operate that other international organizations are not as well funded and, and have. So, uh, as I said, and I apologize for getting off the track, but I think some of the things are, are, are important as characteristics of the institution to know. Uh, uh, as assistance was provided through a trust uh, to which the IBRD transfer part of its net income. From a legal point of view, it was considered a matter of interpretation of the provisions of the articles by the executive directors to the effect that the assistance provided, whether financial or technical, would be for the benefit of the IBRD and its members. So whether, of course, it was of benefit to the Soviet Union, to West Bank in Gaza, and so forth, but from the institutional point of view, the important thing is that it was of benefit to the IBRD and its members to comply with the requirements of the Articles of Agreement. So, and in each of the cases, a legal opinion of the General Counsel accompanied the documentation distributed to the Board of Executive Directors for purposes of uh, their decision. So in each instance, and it's part of this, if you wish, informal interpretative process that I mentioned earlier, the general counsel will prepare the legal opinion, justifying legally that notwithstanding what one would consider practically impossible to go around provisions of the articles, like to assist uh, uh, in the reconstruction and development of territories of members and to use the resources and facilities exclusively for the benefit of the members and then notwithstanding those provisions legally was possible to justify that these operations, this assistance would in, in a way be for the benefit of all the members. Even if the territory, the country concern that would receive the assistance was not a member. I would like to move on now to accountability. And then to human rights, and those are the last two items of the lecture. Uh, dispensive role of the World Bank and also of the multilateral development banks, the influence on investment choices that countries make, the effects of the projects they finance, generated calls, particularly in the late 80s, beginning 90s, from uh, civil society organizations that uh, uh, the, uh, their accountability should equally be expanded and beyond what is provided in the constituent instruments of these institutions. And the catalyzer for this uh, uh, call was a, a project in India called the Narmada Project, for short. I mean, it's known as the Narmada Project. And the issue there was that 
in the execution of this project, not enough attention had been paid uh, by, in particular, by the bank in its supervision of the project and to ensure that its social and environmental policies had been followed in the execution of the project. The result of this, and I'm going to cover it very briefly, but I think it's important that, that you know its existence, was the creation of what is called an inspection panel, which was an innovation from a point of view of international organizations, and is an organ of the executive directors. It was established by the executive directors and is responsible only to them. It is a fact-finding body which may act at the initiative of a group of persons, which have been interpreted to mean two persons, that had been or likely to be, and I'm quoting from the resolution, adversely and materially affected by the World Bank management's disregard of the institution's policies and procedures related to the design, appraisal, and implementation of the project finance bait. It can also be initiated not only by the group of persons affected or that they consider that may be affected, but also by the executive directors themselves or by an individual executive director. When a request is received by a group of uh, affected persons, the executive director decides whether to authorize an investigation by the panel after hearing what management has to say about it. The function of the inspection panel is purely to investigate and report the findings. The inspection panel has no authority to investigate the actions of the borrowers, meaning of the member countries, that may have adverse effects, except to the extent that these effects may be attributed to the failure of the bank itself because it had not exercised its contractual remedies, for instance, suspended disbursements, or it has not been diligent in the supervision of a particular project. The executive directors approve the action plan of management as a follow-up to an investigation. So you have a request, is received, management comments on it, the executive directors decide what to do about it. If they decide to investigate, the inspection panel produces a report management is supposed to prepare an action plan as a follow-up to, uh, to, to the investigation. Uh, how it has evolved, the inspection panel, that's uh, the original idea. And as I said, it was quite innovative in the field of international organizations and has evolved through the review of experience at the World Bank, but also how the other banks, the other development banks, have uh, learned from that experience and replicated similar mechanisms. And is again, uh, in considering the whole group together, it's another interesting example of learning from one institution to another in, in the replication of mechanisms of accountability. Uh, the, there are obviously, as the institution, the, the inspection panel concept has evolved, uh, the variations have turned on the extent of the powers of the inspection mechanism itself and the extent to which management may have a say in the admissibility of the request of inspection or in the decision to proceed to an inspection. 
from the start, there was a tension between the limited fact-finding role of the inspection panel and the need to remedy the situation at the root of the investigation request, irrespective of who was going to be blamed for it. The important thing was just repair the damage, don't blame anybody. That was the, basically the idea, the reaction. There was also difficulty in differentiating between the accountability of management of the World Bank to the executive directors and of borrowers to the institution. And the latter are excluded from the panel's overview. Since uh, the inspection panel was first established, the importance of the panel's role as a problem solver rather than a conduit to apportion blame has increased and is the direction that the more recent established or reform accountability mechanisms are following. Let me talk uh, uh, to finish uh, this presentation on the World Bank and human rights. The World Bank has no operational policy on human rights as such. There is a reference to human rights on the policy on indigenous in the policy on indigenous people. It says the bank's objective towards indigenous people, as for all the people in its member countries, is to ensure that the development process fosters full respect for their dignity, human rights, and cultural uniqueness. On the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the Declaration on Human Rights, uh, there was a, a publication prepared in the bank which is called Development and Human Rights, the Role of the World Bank. And there, the IBRD admits that the article's requirement that only economic considerations shall be relevant limits the range of its activities, but it does not prevent the IBRD from adequately confronting the issue of human rights. Even if some aspects of human rights fall outside its mandate, the bank's economic and social approach to development advances a comprehensive interconnected vision of human rights that is too often overlooked. Through the support of primary education, health, care and nutrition, sanitation, housing and the environment, the IBRD helps people to attain crucial economic and social rights. Indirectly, the IBRD contributes to building environments in which people are better able to pursue a broader range of human rights by helping to fight corruption, improve transparency and accountability in governance, strengthen judicial systems and modernize financial sectors. So the, the World Bank, uh, and I have read from this publication, uh, the, the position has normally taken is that uh, obviously the limited uh, role that it may have on the political side of human rights because of the prohibition in the articles of taking into account political considerations in its activities or to make differences based on the political regime of a particular country. On the other hand, it recognizes that both directly and indirectly may assist in, the, the, in creating environments 
where these rights may be most ably exercised. And definitely when it comes to uh, the social economic rights, uh, it would claim that uh, it has a direct role to play in fostering. I think here I would like to say a word by way of contrast in terms of uh, uh, what is the mandate of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. The Bank for Reconstruction and Development has as its objective the support of democracy, of multi-party systems, the rule of law, and specifically respect for human rights without any distinction between political or economic, social human rights. And uh, how is this translated in practice in an institution which is modeled otherwise after the World Bank? Um, here, I think uh, the IBRD, I mean, not that I think, I mean, the, the e e EBRD has uh, the differentiated between a decision to support a country uh, where political considerations and respect for civil and political human rights are taken into account, and the specific operations where only the social and economic human rights would be taken into account and would play. And uh, how this mandate is implemented is that the, uh, the EBRD uh, makes uh, an annual measurement of political progress in uh, its members by uh, looking at certain uh, factors like uh, free elections, whether the government is accountable to the electorate through an elected legislature, where the government is acting according to the constitution, where there is separation of a state and political parties, etc. And in the cases where the, it is felt that not enough progress has been made and not enough respect to the political uh, human rights side has been made, uh, there is a graduated response. And the graduated response is by postponement of operations, restriction on public sector operations, curtailment of infrastructure let's say, uh, uh, infrastructure activities or national projects as opposed to local activities. They will continue to support local activities but not activities at the national level. Curtailed technical assistance is one of the last things they will do that they will continue to, to support. And uh, obviously that if uh, things do not improve, they may suspend operations altogether and including membership. I would like to try to uh, give you some conclusions uh, as I wrap up the lecture. Um, I would like to emphasize again uh, the importance of practice and the informal means of interpretation that have been preferred to the formal interpretation provided in the Articles of Agreement in order to adapt the institution to changing circumstances. There had been, in this interpretation, probably two concepts that have been very important in how they have developed. 
One is the concept of development. What does development mean and how it has expanded as a concept to include from infrastructure, industrial development, to human rights, uh, judicial reform, and as we see political development to a certain extent in the mandate of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. The other concept is the one of project, how flexible it has been in terms of financing activities beyond what one would think of this word as purely an engineering word of a project to build a dam, to education, to social uh, uh, projects of many kinds, from family planning to nutrition, etc. I think this, these two words, as I said, from a conceptual point of view and what they mean, have been key in terms of, uh, if you wish, adapting the, the institution uh, to the changing circumstances it has faced. Uh, as uh, we have seen, the flexibility in the interpretation of the mandate of an institution like the World Bank and the ever-widening concept of development have brought to the fore issues of legitimacy and accountability related to the policies and practice beyond the purely institutional confines. And in response, the, the, the World Bank incorporated civil society organizations in the process of policy formulation, which I've been referring to, and also devise institutional venues for third parties to be heard if they have been adversely affected by operations, finance, in this regard of its own policies and procedures, like the inspection panel. There is, in the nature of the World Bank and the multilateral development banks, uh, uh, this bridge concept. There are bridge institutions between developed and developing countries, between private capital markets and public and private recipients of funds. And they are placed in a unique intermediary position and their experience, practices, policies and procedures have served as a catalyst to develop and apply a standards filling a vacuum in an interdependent world, like in areas, for instance, like uh, the environment, which we have not gone too much into it, but for instance, environmental assessments and the practice of environmental assessments the practice of investments, what are the requirements for protection of investments, etc. The standards developed by institutions like the World Bank have served as models by many other institutions, including institutions in the private sector. And there are uh, private institutions that realize how complicated once that they extend their financing worldwide to finance projects, what it means for their reputation, I mean to finance displaced persons, how to deal with displaced persons, and uh, the policies of the bank in, uh, on, on that type of topic had been, if you wish, replicated also in other institutions in that respect. And I, I think this is uh, the end of the lecture and has been a pleasure for me and an honor to participate in this program. Thank you.